Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this, your Lord's Day, Sunday, together with your children in your house, and to study your word. Lord, we thank you for the truth of the words we're able to sing, and to sing from our hearts. Lord, we ask that those words clearly line up with the scripture we will study, and Lord, that your work would prompt real and true change in our lives. Lord, we thank you so much for the ways in which you've gifted these good things to us, to be here together, to have our health, to have freedom, but Lord, most of all, to know the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, we ask that you continue to give us what we need to give others what they need, and that you would bless our country, bless our church. Lord, that we would know what it is we're supposed to be doing, to know when to speak and when to remain silent. But Lord, we just ask that you be pleased in us, and for the hour we're here together, that we would learn, that you would teach, that we would be an encouragement to one another. And Lord, thank you again for the privilege that is ours to worship you in this way. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Well, it is good to see each of you. And you need to know that means more than it used to. Uh, because we took that for granted. We've learned not to do that as much now. And to have people in the pews uh, is so much better. And I hope I never forget what it was like to see nothing in these pews uh, for so many weeks. But thank you for being here. I'm glad you're here. And what we're going to do today is what we've been doing for many, many, many weeks. It's a simplified service. And we'll try to, again, keep it simple today. But I want to invite you to turn with me to John's Gospel. And uh, we're, we're beginning a new chapter today in our series through the book of John. We start chapter 14. And uh, we'll read it first. And then we'll ask the Lord for help. And then we'll walk through this a verse at a time, trying to understand what is being said. And then we'll make application as to how we are to be obedient to what we know is true in Scripture. So let me read the first 14 verses of the 14th chapter of the Gospel of John. Much of this, at least the beginning, will be familiar to you, I'm sure. And then we'll pray. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. 
Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask for his help in study. Father in heaven, again, with our Bibles open, we ask you to help us understand and obey. Lord, to do this, we hope it bring glory to you and obedience to our lives. We thank you for this privilege, and we ask it in your strong name. Amen. Well, when we read chapter 14, and it hasn't been long since we were in chapter 13, we spent two weeks there, we must remember that the same tone carries through these chapters, and it will through into chapter 15 and 16 and 17. It's not until 18 that this one singular setting and conversation uh, ends. So we've got to not forget all the stuff we learned from the past two weeks. I know that that's a stretch. Um, sometimes to remember the sermon <laughs> through lunch is difficult, but this is familiar territory. Jesus had washed the disciples' feet. And then he had delivered some bad news uh, to these men. Uh, one was that he was going away. One was that he was going to be betrayed. Uh, before it was over, and right before this word we just read in, in 14.1, he told Peter that he was going to deny him, disown him, three times before the morning. So, to read chapter 14, we have to keep the tone of chapter 13 in our mind for the sake of continuity, or it won't make sense as it should. It's also a night, and we almost forget that it was less than a week earlier before a mob of people shouted, Hosanna, and ascribed kingship to this man as he entered into the city. But it's on this night that it would seem fitting that his disciples, his followers, the ones that were close to him, uh, would be in the position appropriately uh, to lend him help. Um, spiritual, emotional support. That, that, to say that he's troubled and to have said it repetitively... Would, would probably be seen as much as heard in the tone of his voice. But it's still him, Jesus, as the one who's giving and comforting and walking these men through everything that they need to know 
to prepare them not to get through the following night and the next day, but to understand the meaning of it all by the time he ascends into the clouds and into heaven. So regardless of how many times you may have heard these words, especially the first verse used in Christian funerals or at graveside services, do not let your hearts be troubled. We need to never forget that they were first delivered to a group of men under a massive amount of distress and on the verge of total destruction. For all intents and purposes, as the world to which they thought they understood, especially the last three years given over to this man that they've hitched their wagon with, who's now told them he not only is leaving and will be betrayed, but actually disowned by Peter of all the disciples. So to read again with that, having you know, backed the truck up, make sure we're on the same page, let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus says. Believe in God, believe also in me. So do not let your heart be troubled, says the man who has been saying troubling things. It would be a good way to bridge the gap between the two chapters. And while they can't follow him, because he said so, he's promised to come back and take them with him. And even though he'll be soon leaving... He's going away to prepare a place for each one of them to stay with him forever. So within the bad news is good news. And how are they to calm their hearts after the punctuation there in the first line? By believing in what Jesus is saying is true. You believe in God, believe also in me. Or you believe God to tell the truth, believe me to tell the truth. And then he goes on in, in, in verse 2 about the houses... Uh, the many rooms in his father's house, and that it wouldn't make sense if that wasn't true, that he had been talking about it. It seems to indicate that he, they'd been through this before. And then that he's going away to prepare this place for them. And the construction of all this seems to really say, my going away is what will prepare the possibility for you to have space in one of those many rooms. Uh, that they can be there as well. And uh, for the purpose of what? To be together with Him. It's interesting here, if you're reading between the lines and just taking this along with everything else Jesus has said and done, He was never one to speculate about His future. Um, that, that, that's that's uh, big bucks as far as the religious bookstores go you know you, you if you can write uh, well about what we hope to have in heaven that usually works out it's a wide readership for that type of thing jesus didn't need to speculate about any of that with us it's it's practically all speculation but with him he talks of this as if he's as familiar with eternity as as any one of us is familiar with our own hometown and not only is he certain about that, but the certainty of his return is as certain as his departure. Um, sometimes we, we get chill bumps watching the old black and white footage where uh, General Douglas MacArthur said, I shall return. That's nothing compared to this return. 
and, and what's waiting for those upon that return. Well, we're going with him instead of staying where we are. Uh, it, it, the simplest explanation is usually best in trying to figure out what is meant by passages such as in my father's house. That refers to heaven. There's really no other option there. And the description is that there's plenty of room. Um, your translation may have mansion, and we tend to attach to mansion uh, maybe the wrong thing. The emphasis here is not with the opulence or luxury of the actual room, but that there is plenty of it. It's, it's usually dangerous for us to take all the stuff that we would think would be great in this life and expect it to translate into the next one as if it's just as good. It's much better. And it's probably much better left unsaid because we'll worry about it. Or we'll wonder if we're getting a good trade. There's only a few passages in Scripture that I'm still unsure about and I just have to trust the Lord they're better. One of those is that there will be no sea. In the new heaven and the new earth. I love that sea. I've only seen one of the seven. It'll be better. I know. I believe God. I believe Jesus. That my heart wouldn't be troubled over things like that. But it, it, there's enough here. But then there's not enough for our inquiring mind sometimes that wants to know. But the emphasis is here on the room. And that I'm going to make sure that when I come back, you can come too. So if you notice, and uh, we'd have to have read, read through further, but uh, in chapter 14, it's a discussion. Because it's not just Jesus talking. There are three different points where one of his disciples will speak back. Almost as if to interrupt. So three interruptions... Uh, the first is Thomas, we read that. The second is Philip, we read that. But we would have had to read through verse 22 to read of the other, other Judas. It's very clear there, Judas, not Iscariot. He's not in the room any longer. Um, but the disciples here are trying to wrestle with what Jesus is saying. And each of these exchanges, I think, are sounding more like reasoned discussion rather than flat out misunderstanding that has been so frequent from the beginning of John with the first disciples who misunderstood what he meant by following him all the way with his mother and his family and the disciples at every turn it seems they're misunderstanding what he's saying here it looks as if they are tracking with what he's saying and are thoroughly confused as we would be and Jesus helps them to understand if only to understand that there's a lot that they don't know so they're beginning to get a clue here that there's a lot they don't yet know that seems to be the point Jesus had said to them this is verse 4 if you'd look again and you know the way to where I am going Thomas, who interjects in verse 5, I believe is being quite honest. And uh, I have to give the man credit. 
for not pretending that he had understanding that he knew he didn't have. How many of you were the kid in class when the professor or the teacher is going on about something and you don't get it? But instead of sitting there like the rest of the class, you go, I don't understand you. Who likes to say, I don't understand? I mean, for a nickel, for every time we just let somebody drone on about who knows what. When actually we were responsible for what they're saying and it would be reflected on a test or maybe it's directions to get somewhere or maybe it's your dad trying to tell you not to do the stuff that he had done that got him into trouble. But that that seems to be our... I applaud the fact that the man would speak up in the room and say, help us here. And then add to the fact that he had just said previously to Peter, you can't go with me. You will, but you can't now. So when Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you're going. And he doesn't have to say, we know we can't come. Then he says, how can we know the way? So basically he's saying, we don't know the way part because we don't know the where part. And unless you give us something more, it's almost impossible for us to solve this, this riddle. Thomas is speaking for more than himself. He uses the word we, and they're probably thankful that he, he did. And if, and this is my way of speculating as to maybe the roadblock in their mind they've arrived at. If it means the end of their following Jesus as the Messiah of Israel and the Son of God. If, if, this is, if this is the end of the road for this man as the Messiah and as the Son of God we've confessed him to be, then what else is left? This, this, this is total collapse. There's, there's no surviving this. The Messiah doesn't have uh, you know, phases or, 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 you know, the Messiah we know doesn't do that. The Son of God doesn't fail. He doesn't die. And whether or not they're putting together in their head that this is going to end in execution or not, we're not yet sure. But because of their ideas of what this is supposed to mean, they know clearly enough that it's not supposed to end like this. So how does Jesus answer the question, we don't know where you're going So how can we know the way? It's a perfect setup for verse 6. Where Jesus answers the question, we don't know the way by saying clearly, I am the way. You're looking for an it. It's a him. I'm your way. Been on about this for a long time. But it all must come together not geographically, or not even in steps on a sequence, ten steps to arriving to where you need to be spiritually. No, it, it's me. I'm your ticket. I'm the key. I'm the door. I'm the way. Jesus said to him, I'm the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way. And if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, and here's, here's their hope, from now on you do know him 
and have seen him. We'll come back to that. Let me just read to you something uh, Morris had said, commentator. At, at, at just trying to, to hear this, not only from the ears of the disciples who were standing there then, but the disciples who would be standing scattered apart hours later. If we step back and hear these words against what lies just beyond these men on the eve of the crucifixion, Morris says, I am the way is said by the one who would shortly hang on a Roman cross. I am the truth when lies of evil men were about to enjoy a spectacular triumph. And I am the life when within just hours his corpse would be laid in a tomb. So the confusion is justifiable. This does not add up. But don't forget from last week. The you will deny me three times. Does not undo. You will follow me afterward. This isn't the end. You got to go through that valley of the shadow of death. To understand what's on the other side. But back to this idea of the contents of what's there in. Verse 6, Jesus did not claim merely to know the way. The truth in the life is a formula. You know, you just put this into the, the search bar or the calculator or whatever, and you do these, you'll get the results you want. As if he could teach these things to others, but he actually claimed to be the way to the Father. And uh, not to get too technical in the original Greek. I realize you don't speak original Greek. The words are arranged to put stress in certain places such that it, it would actually help to look at it as Jesus is the way that Thomas and Philip are asking about, that Peter was confused about the way to the Father. He is the way because He is the truth and because He is the life. That's what qualifies Him to be the way. The truth and the life. Not as if they're three singular, detached, disconnected qualities of Him. But those two, the, the truth and the life, provide the way through Jesus. We have neither. He's the one breathed. Life into our nostrils. All the way back to Adam. He's the one who brings life after the curse of death as far as sin. The truth that he's going to talk about with Pilate. Where he's on trial as a witness to the truth. The reason why he came. Is to take the contents of what is known in heaven. And bring them down to this earth. And reveal them to us. So we can know the truth. And that truth is straight from heaven, from the mouth of God. And that life is straight from the life giver who made the whole earth and everything that's in it. So based on those two things, he is exclusively the only way back to the Father. Back to the Father. Much like in the Garden of Eden before anything went wrong. Back when everything was called good. That's what Jesus is saying. And really it all goes back... To the first chapter. If you want to turn back to John 1 in the prologue. And we spent how many weeks in the prologue just making sure we understood it. Because nothing new is said through the rest of the book of John. As far as a bold claim of, of truth. He gave us all that in the first 18 verses. 
The rest of it's just fleshing out what John tells us to be true in the first 18. The disciples are struggling to see this. They're worried he's leaving. Where's he going? How are we going to know? Where, where's he going? Why can't we go with him? Verse 118. This is the, the, the culmination of all that was said that just started in verse 1, how he was in the beginning, was with God, was God, became flesh in verse 14, but for the purpose in verse 18 of fixing a very huge problem. No one has ever seen God. Why? Because we're people. And He's a God. It's kind of like asking ants in your ant farm how well they know you. They can't see human beings. Not like ants see each other. That's a horrible illustration. But it might give you a a clue as to the difference between what we're discussing here. The only God who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus' Son, has made him known. This is past tense. John's telling us what's true, and then he'll tell us how it happened. But that's how we know. Jesus is going to tell us. He's going to show us. By revealing to us the truth. By giving us life after it's paid for. So no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He's made Him known. So up until now, that written in past tense, all of this is preparation for these disciples. They've not really come to full knowledge of Jesus and His significance because they haven't seen Him as He is. Not yet. This is confirmed in the next few verses with the second interruption. Now it's time for Philip. And if Thomas was a skeptic, again, I applaud his honesty. Philip was a realist. He's just down to brass tacks type of guy. And his idea is if they could just see God, they'd be satisfied. But we know, we just read, you won't see God but through Jesus. So in verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. If you have a King James, I think the word is sufficeth. How many of you have ever used that word in a sentence? Probably no one. Ever. It just means enough. The new modern word, ESV, but it means the same. It'd be enough for us. It would be sufficient if you just show us God. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me? Whoever's seen me has seen the Father. You could say, Whoever knows me knows the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Verse 10, Do you not believe that I am the Father and the Father's in me? We're each other in a way. The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority. Again, he says what he's been saying is only what he's been giving. The Father who dwells in me does his works, and these things are testified by his signs. The signs aren't the big deal, but they point to the big deal. And if you recognize the sign, you understand what it means. So believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me, or else just believe on account of the works for themselves. That should hold you until these things make sense in time. There's good and there's bad in in Philip's request. One is, again, that he's earnest. The bad part is just that he's obtuse. He's slow to see these things. Same as we all are. Uh, The idea that you can welcome someone in the front door of a church who's a blank slate 
as far as the contents of this book and in 15 minutes tell them everything they need to know to understand the concepts from the garden in Genesis to glory in heaven. It should tell you that if it takes the Son of God three years to bring 12 men along and on the eve of His crucifixion they still don't get it. Now that we've got access to the whole story, they didn't. But for the modern American mind, this is all quite a reach. And we be patient with these things. So, the obtuseness is also known as depravity. And it's going to take the miracle of God to open their eyes. It may be hard for Philip to hear this, but we need to remember, Philip has been chosen by Jesus from the beginning. We heard that last week including that one that was the devil who's on his way to begin the process of his arrest and trial and execution. But having been chosen, Jesus is now holding him accountable to the information he's given him. And aren't we glad that Jesus holds us accountable to what he's given us? Greater works than these is what is given to us in verse 12. He's telling Philip here and bringing back in the idea of the signs. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 12, whoever believes in me will also do those works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Uh, It's going to get better. There are going to be things that are greater about my absence than were about my presence. Such that whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified. And the mention of these greater works than these refer to the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives and on the lives of these disciples as they scatter into the world and proclaim the gospel. Jesus had been bound to time and space one place at one time with just 12 men. Well, these 12 men are going out to do what he did with them. And the work will multiply in greatness such that in Fuquay Verena we're talking about it today. So that's what is meant. Um, I don't think I need to tell anybody that this verse does not represent a big fat blank check, right? That whatever you ask, you'll get it. The, the hard part with that is the in His name. Most of our prayers are in our name. And those won't cash. It has to be on the name of Jesus. The bank of the name of Jesus. Then they'll cash. Everything Jesus did while he was on this planet was for the single purpose of bringing glory to his Father's name. That's what he said. This will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Do what? Continue to bless the work of his witness, the truth that I've given you. By answering your request when you pray to carry it out, to be faithful, to be obedient. So the enablement of his followers to do greater things through the promised Answer of prayer is for the very same purpose, to glorify God in heaven. So what do we do with all this? Um, The significance of this passage alone, and uh, I struggled with this, especially during a hectic week with uh, quite a list of distractions. What do you do with with the, the key verse to the whole book? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Now, the, 
the key verse maybe, as, as some would put it together, to understand the book is at the end, chapter 20, where these things are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, believing you might have life in His name. That's the purpose for His writing. But what He's writing about, the big idea, is that Jesus is the only way to heaven. And either our investment of a year's plus time in this book so far has led us to the place where verse 6 of chapter 14 shines as it should. Or maybe we've got more work to do. The disciples didn't get it. We have encouragement there. But then Jesus holds these men accountable. So we never outlive our need to be a student. But I thought I'd just conclude with taking our minds through some things that we've discussed before and in a similar way. But to frame that by saying this, if John 3.16 is the world's most beloved verse, well-known verse, favorite verse, first verse many of us memorize, and we all know it by heart, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The world's most hated verse comes from the same book. And that's the verse we've studied today. Because it says there's only one way. And to get it wrong is to miss heaven. This is... The one place where the criticism of the world actually fits. It is narrow-minded. It is exclusive. It is, in a sense, bigoted. Might even go as far as to say that it's hateful. But only in the sense against any error that would compromise its truth. That's what this verse is. Because it can't be in a, any other way. And this is where the world would say, how could you ever say such a hateful thing? Then to say that all the other religions of the world are not only wrong, but useless. And I've heard of testimonies of people being, being in class when the professor finds someone that they know that's a Christian, brings this up and says, do you actually believe that? And they're faced with the, with, with the option... Uh, as I heard one person say it, to tell the truth and take the cost or commit cosmic treason by denying it. So we, we feel the, 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 the weight of this, of course. Most exclusive, arrogant, narrow-minded, hateful piece of religious bigotry the world has ever seen. Amen. But what do we do with it? And what would we tell someone who can't wrap their mind around such a thing. One of the better ways I've ever heard is don't ever give them just that alone. Stick it in the middle of a Bible and teach that to them. It's the only way it'll ever make sense. And if you've only got a little bit of time, 
and you don't even have a Bible, you could almost, just for purpose of illustration, suppose your way through the big pieces and arrive at perhaps a satisfactory answer. We've done this before. But let's just suppose that there was a God who had the power of existence within himself to be but never created. And because he just wanted to, not out of necessity, but of his own free will, decided to create a universe with a world right in the middle of it, with water and land and birds and fish, but with man, different than the rest of those, created, let's say, in his own image for the purpose of displaying his likeness to the rest of the created work there on that planet. And because he made it, and because he's not only its owner, but its author, he can impose moral restrictions on it to the tune of his own moral character. Now let's just suppose that out of all the things he gave them in the perfect place he put them with everything they needed, he said one rule. It's a tree over here you can't have. And if you take it, I'll know your desire to break my law. And let's just suppose that even though the birds and the fish and the monkeys and the planets and everything else were doing exactly what they were created to do and always have, that one creation who was given choice used it to turn its back on God. And let's just suppose that all the generations that came from that first man and woman in this supposition we're thinking through inherited that rebellion against this God, that something was lost. The relationship they had before was now marred. Even their ability to convert, have conversation with him and, and, and know who he is and what he's doing had changed since back in that garden. And let's just suppose that as each generation came and went, this rebellion got worse and worse. Such that he decided to take one man and create one group of people. And through this one group of people, he would tell the world that he, their creator, is interested in redeeming them from the problem that they're very aware of. And he told this group of people, I'll be your God, you'll be my people. I'll bless you if you obey me, I'll disobey you if you curse me. Which is really the same deal from the very beginning. They said they would, but then they didn't. And let's say that through a long, dramatic record of history, he sent messengers to them. Judges, prophets, priests, kings. To tell them the same story. It never changed. I will take you back and fix what is wrong. But you'll have to serve me to do it. And obey me at that. And they wouldn't do it. And those messengers. They didn't just reject them. Many of them they killed. And let's just suppose. If we're getting real fancy here. That this God who made this experiment. Decided himself. They're not listening to the men I send them. I'll just go myself. But I'll do it in such a way that they shouldn't miss it. I'll, I'll, I'll take on their own flesh. I will myself become, in a way, what I've created. 
and I'll tell them personally. And I'll make it clear. I'll do things none of them can do. Signs that should settle any dispute. And I'll love them in a way none of them are capable of. And I'll do things that'll scramble their minds because it's just not the way they are. I'll show them it can be different. I'll show them what they're missing. And let's just suppose that these people, specifically the ones he descended from, that chosen group to tell the rest of the world God intends to redeem them, let's say that they kill him too. But more brutally than they had any in the past. Now let's just suppose that this God who is responsible for all of this would again choose of his own free will to offer the murderers of his own son forgiveness with one caveat. You will worship and follow my son that I sent to tell you that you killed. And if you'll do that, I'll not only forgive you, but I'll give you eternal life. Now, who would say at the end of that story, it's not enough? What a horrible God. Why in the world would He only give them one way to do that? Why won't He let them make up their way however they want to make it up? Why won't He let them attempt to work for themselves, although it's obvious they can't do it and never have? I've never heard anything more awful or bigoted or narrow-minded than that. How in the world could you call that love? No one would say it when you look at it that way. But that's exactly what we've done. God offers His Son's murderers total forgiveness on the one condition that they worship and believe Him alone. So I suggest we do our best telling the world one person at a time, however long it takes, the story from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation. If you see the whole story, like his disciples did, you'll see what John did. And perhaps you'll be convinced to say as he, these things are said, are shared. Sunday schools meet, churches meet, Bible studies meet. Wherever you can meet, college campuses, back porches, wherever. So that you may believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. And in believing, you might have life through His name. He is who He said He was. He really is God. Who really has died in your place. To really forgive you. And to really have taken the wrath of God on His shoulders. So that you can go back to the garden where it was good. And where you could fellowship with God. He's here to show you the Father. He's the way, the truth, and the life. With that said, let's pray. Father in heaven. Lord, without your truth and without your life, we're lost. We're dead in our trespasses and sins and dead bodies can't do a thing. But Lord, when you awaken us the sound of the truth of your word, something takes place. That is truly the best news we've ever heard. 
the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you give us what it takes to tell others? And for anyone who's wrestling with these things, perhaps questioning as the disciples did, that's good. Lord, continue to bring them along and open their eyes to the rest of the story. May we be faithful in carrying the story to others. And Lord, like Philip, who was close, but not close enough just yet, may we feel like that's our lot in life. May we be bold enough to ask you questions, but faithful enough to take the criticism that we should know you better by now so we can tell others. Or thank you for your goodness and your grace. And Lord, I ask that as we leave here, you'd give us not only the encouragement that comes from just rehearsing the things we know that have changed our lives forever, but give us the fuel to go tell some others about it. And Lord, I ask that you use, again, the, the rehearsal, which is what a hymn is, a rehearsal of truth. Lord, help us to truly sing to God be the glory because of the great things you've done that you so loved a world that you gave us your son. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.